This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us. Let us turn our attention to what is going on in Holly Springs, Mississippi. We talked a lot about some of these churches that went ahead with Easter services and had some problems and there were some lawsuits filed. We talked about that on yesterday's show. But I want to talk a little bit about First Pentecostal Church of Holly Springs, Mississippi, because the situation there is even more bizarre than some of these other stories I've been telling you about. I want to start by telling you what happened in Holly Springs on March 23rd. Third, you had the mayor and the board of aldermen there, according to the local newspaper, the South Reporter, holding a specially called meeting and passed both a resolution and a proclamation of a local emergency and a stay-at-home order due to COVID-19. The stay-at-home order took effect on March 23rd. It closes non-essential businesses plus social and church activities during this time, particularly following the guidelines from the national level of no gatherings of groups more than 10. If possible, non-essential businesses like restaurants and others listed in the proclamation can use drive-through windows, curbside service, or delivery. Continued operation of essential businesses is allowed, but those businesses too are mandated to close waiting areas where more than 10 people might gather. And if possible, they should utilize drive-through, curbside, et cetera, et cetera. These include pharmacies, banks, grocery stores, hardware stores, and others. It's all about maintaining the safety and the health of the community. And there you go. So you had this in place and this is all you know, pretty standard stuff these days. We want to limit our contact with other people insofar as it's possible. So you've had some of these ordinances and some of these proclamations and orders around the country. And, you know, I I generally don't have any problem with it because I think that it makes sense. If you have a pandemic going around, you want to limit the ability of people to pass it around, particularly because COVID-19 can be asymptomatic. You don't know if you have it. If you have the flu, you know you have something bad. You have a high fever, you have fatigue, you have all kinds of other symptoms. You know you're sick, but COVID-19 is a little bit more of a sticky wicket. So what went on in Holly Springs, Mississippi? Well, at First Pentecostal Church, they went ahead with their service. They went ahead with their service and the cops shut them down. The cops actually came into the church and shut them down. So I want you to listen to a little bit of what the pastor, Jerry Waldrop, had to say and there, there's a video online. If you go on my Twitter feed, at Janet Mefford, you can see it. You can watch the whole 15-minute video where the cops come in and stop the service. And then the pastor, after getting cited and told he basically has to cease and desist this service, with about, it looked from the video like there were maybe 20 people there, 25, something like that. More than 10, but it wasn't exactly packed to the rafters. It wasn't 500 people or anything like that. At any rate, the pastor got up after the cops left and had this to say. Cut one. Well, we had some guests go up and uh, said we have to disperse. We have to, I told them to come in and go ahead and run y'all off. 
And uh, I don't know, something happened. Come on now. Oh, come on, Dr. Citation told me I broke the law. I said, That's not the law. The law is the Constitution of the United States. That's our law. That's the law of the land, and every other law is under submission to the Constitution of the United States. Exactly. We're not trying to be rude, but I told them that when we dismiss here, we're all going to Walmart and go in. That's right. Come on. Because I want to I prove the point that they're not enforcing the law. That's right. Right. Come on. Come on. And they're saying that we can only get a few in at a time. So I want to see. Okay. That's what their plan was. We've been shut down by the local police. We're in violation of this ordinance. But why can't we gather? Hey, I know. Why don't we go over to Walmart? You know, this is something I was saying kind of jokingly last week. If you can't gather as a church, just go over on Easter Sunday and worship at Walmart. Now, I'm saying this jokingly, but I was saying it in reaction to some of the insanity where drive-in church services were even being shut down. And at that point, it's just ridiculous. That's not about protecting people. That's about being thugs. Because nobody sitting in a car is going to spread COVID-19 to the guy in the next car when you have the windows up. And I mean, that's not about protecting people from COVID-19. That's just being a tyrant because you certainly don't have any cops lining up at the Starbucks arresting people who are waiting in line for their soy lattes. They're not worried about the Starbucks customers spreading COVID-19 to the guy in the car behind them or the woman in the car behind them. So let's just you know, note how ridiculous this is, not to mention the fact that the Walmart situation, we understand, falls under the category of essential because they sell food and they sell milk and all these things that we need to actually live. So they're recognizing these big box retailers are getting the main shipments of supplies. You got to let people buy stuff so they can eat. I totally support that. But I was in Walmart this morning and you didn't have a whole lot of social distancing. I had to get out of line, in fact, because the couple behind me were getting awfully close. And I thought, okay, they have signs on the floor here, guys. You know, stand on your blue circle over there at six feet distancing. Didn't care. And the woman in front of me was coughing my direction. So I said, all right, I'm going to go through self-checkout, which took about two hours. No, I'm kidding. At any rate, Walmart, we recognize this. When you go to Walmart, not everybody's wearing a mask. Not even all the employees are wearing masks. And not everybody is standing six feet apart because how in the world do you enforce that? Are you going to have the manager of Walmart running around with a tape measure, making sure people don't run afoul of the six foot Mark, there's no way they can do that, nor would they. That's just obnoxious. So these church members, after being shut down, head over to Walmart to see what happens. And one of the church members, you can hear her talking on this cell phone video that also was posted to YouTube. This is cut two. Yeah, they pawned that. Can't come to church, but but you can come to Walmart. Cops done beat us out here. They're standing at the door. They're not going to let us in. We told them we were coming to Walmart. Can't have church, but you can go in Walmart. Ridiculous. Our church group coming to Walmart just to prove a point. All right, we gotta stop it. Stop right here. Just to prove a point, every one of us got in. Our whole entire church group in Walmart, but we can't assemble in church building. No social distancing in Walmart. Nobody six feet apart in Walmart. They said only 50 people can come in. Yeah, only 50 people can come in. 
There we got 50 people in our sanctuary. Praise the Lord, sister. Praise the Lord. All right. So you could hear what happened. They went inside Walmart. Here they were. There were probably 25 people. The people from the church service went into Walmart. What happened next? The cops kicked them out. This is heavily edited to take out a lot of the stuff you wouldn't be able to understand. It's a cell phone video, so the audio is not top quality. But you can hear the main stuff here. Listen to cut three. There's no, there's three more cops, three or four more cops. Okay, okay so right now you have people gathered. You're breaking the protocol of this door. They are not allowing people to come together in the same world. Y'all not supposed to be gathered up like that. Y'all supposed to be spread out. Y'all exit the building. He said exit the building. No social distancing here. Only our group has to be social distancing. You like that? The cops say you have to leave and you have to listen to the protocol from Walmart on what you can do. And if you keep watching the video, one of the employees from Walmart says, well, we tell people to stand six feet apart, but we can't really enforce it. All we can do is tell people. And the church is right. Why aren't they kicking anybody else out of this Walmart for not standing six feet apart from every other customer? Does that not look suspicious to you that the cops were just irritated with these people? They didn't like the fact that they were holding a church service and not observing proper social distancing. And then they were more irritated that the church came over to Walmart and then was flaunting it. But they were they were trying to make a point. And the point is, I think, important. The point is, despite the fact that I do think it's wise and prudent to continue to socially distance and to not have in-person church for a short period of time, it's this kind of stuff that makes me want to say, when you guys turn into thugs, then people have to start standing up and making points like this in order to really drive home that there is still a First Amendment, even though there's a pandemic. I think we should be wise. We should voluntarily do what the government asks us to do, but the government is just in some locations getting a little bit out of hand. We're going to come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. 3,100 Americans lost their lives yesterday and the day before, not to the coronavirus, but to abortion on demand in our country. It's a tragedy of incomparable proportions, with over 800,000 weekly, globally, losing their lives. In the face of this, Preborn is offering free, compassionate, Christ-centered care and ultrasounds to girls in unplanned pregnancies. Would you prayerfully consider sponsoring an ultrasound for a girl today? Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Your gift of $28 will provide one free ultrasound and $140 will provide five free ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. Will you help a mom in need choose life? Just call now. 855-402-2229 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that 
that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Thank you for being with me. Don't socially distance from me. I love having you here. Yes, we're socially distanced. That's the beauty of radio. We don't get close enough to cough on each other, but we are close enough to pray for one another. So I thank you for being here. I was telling you about First Pentecostal Church of Holly Springs, Mississippi, and I actually thought it was a bit humorous that when this church had its service shut down by the cops, they went over to Walmart because they knew they wouldn't be thrown out of Walmart. You're allowed to go into Walmart and walk around and not socially distance, and the cops won't do anything to you, except the cops did do something to them. They said, you have to go outside and find out what the protocol is and follow it because you guys aren't standing six feet apart. It's just a little bit, a little bit of harassment, in my opinion, when you watch these videos. Well, let's turn our attention to something else. Joy Reid over at MSNBC had on some wonderful progressives to weigh in on the idiocy of evangelicals because that's what MSNBC does. And I wanted to play a little bit of this audio. Jim Wallace was there from Sojourners, the Marxist, and Reza Aslan was there, the Muslim who likes to write books about Christians, and the guy who got his own credential. He, 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 well, let's say it this way. He did not correctly put forth his proper credentials when he was talking in an interview on Fox a number of years ago. You might remember that. You could look that up. At any rate, the wonderful panel talking about evangelicals, and it just at one point goes off the rails. Let's listen first to this question from Joy Reid. Cut four. Reza Aslan, abortion is the, the key to support for Donald Trump and the fact that he'll nominate judges who may overturn Roe v. Wade. That's the sort of core of the support. Is it as simple as, as that or is, is there more of sort of a also, you know, the tide of the country turning toward black and brown folks? Is, is it all of that or, or one more than the other? Do you like that? How she just bakes in the bias? It, are evangelicals just supporting Trump because of things like abortion or also because they're turning on black and brown people? What? What is that? You know, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Let's ask that question, too. And here's Reza. This is cut five. Well, I think it's, it is important to understand that for a lot of evangelical Christians, particularly white evangelical Christians, abortion had a huge role to do with why they supported Donald Trump. And Donald Trump very much in a cynical way used abortion uh, as a means of gathering that kind of support, record support, as you know, Joyce, some 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. That was a record in this country. That's more white evangelicals than voted for George W. Bush, who was actually a white evangelical. Again, how in the world can you make the case that Trump used abortion to get support? Because that implies that once he was elected, he abandoned it as an issue and forgot about it. In fact, he's been the most pro-life president ever 
So clearly there's conviction there. It wasn't just a matter of currying votes from evangelicals. It was also a matter of conviction for him. And look at all the pro-lifers he's placed in his administration, the highest of which is Vice President Mike Pence. Now it really goes off the rails with Reza Aslan. Listen to this one. Cut six. But I don't think that we should pretend that the white part of this sentence doesn't matter. 67% of evangelicals of color voted for Hillary Clinton. These are people who more or less believe the same thing, hold the same theology, but just have a different skin tone. Um, I think there was this wonderful article in Christianity Today, uh, not long after the election, that said that white evangelicals acted more white than evangelical. I believe my good friend Jim Wallace has made comments like that as well. So race unquestionably played a part in it. It's just absurd. 67% of evangelicals have the same theology as the 81% of white evangelicals who voted for Trump. They don't have the same theology. If the abortion issue were important to those 67% of those voters, I I don't want to impugn all of them because there may be a fair number of them who just voted for the Democrat because they always do. But if you had the same convictions on both sides, I don't think they would have voted for different candidates because there were huge, stark differences between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Uh, Do we really need to revisit all of that? And then listen to what he says next. Cut seven. But I think that there is something deeper as well. And it has to do with uh, what sometimes is referred to as the loss of the culture wars by uh, white evangelicals. I've written a lot about this. I've spoken a lot about the way in which Trump's evangelical supporters have started to seem like a kind of cult, um, a, a deeply insular group that's bound together by this extreme devotion to a charismatic leader. And what I'm really worried about right now with this pandemic is that what what allows a cult to truly thrive is a sense of siege. This worked in 2016 because Donald Trump told them that, you know, Democrats are out to destroy churches and kill babies and take away their guns and that worked. But now we are literally experiencing a sense of siege. And so this backlash that you're seeing from a lot of pastors in places like Louisiana or Kansas, Kentucky, across the country, frankly, to try to prove something by forcibly having these in-person services, defying the authorities, uh, defying medical advice in order to make some kind of point about their support for Donald Trump. This is the kind of behavior, this cult-like behavior that can lead to, as Jim said, to the deaths of thousands of people. It's, It's no longer just a cult of personality. I don't think we can call it that anymore. It's now becoming a doomsday cult. Okay, that's fantastic. Evangelicals are a doomsday cult. We were just a cult of personality. We were unnaturally attached to the personality of Donald Trump and we're clinging to him like he's Jim Jones. Sure, sure, Reza, that's what's going on. We're clinging to Trump like he's Jim Jones. Meanwhile, you're talking like that and you're not even honest about it because the number of churches that have decided to hold in-person services is so minuscule. You could count them on probably 
fewer than 10 fingers, but they get all of the publicity because there are so few of them. 99.999% of evangelical churches have heeded the government's guidance and said, we will abide by this shutdown because we believe that that's the wise thing to do. We will do it on a temporary basis, but we're letting you know, government officials, that it is voluntary on our part. And there are a few outliers who are saying no. And there were some of those people who just wanted to have drive-in services, which I think is perfectly fine. You're maintaining a distance, but you're kind of gathering in an assembly. I don't really have a problem with that. If you have in your own parking lot, people parked and they're all listening through their radios to the pastor up front. I don't have a problem with that. Nobody's going to get the disease, the virus, I should say, by the guy in the next car. And they're a doomsday cult for having a drive-in service. Listen, when we talk about Trump and what he said, Trump was whipping them up into the siege mentality, telling them that their churches would be destroyed. Well, what happened in Kentucky over the weekend again? What was that? No, you can't meet. You you can't have church. It's unconstitutional. And there was a restraining order filed against Governor Brashear. If you're trying to destroy churches, there's your exhibit A. Take your guns. Oh, let's see. Joe Biden already said just openly and honestly, oh, yeah, I'm going to take your guns and killing babies. Well, let's look at what Governor Ralph Northam did in Virginia. Pro-infanticide. Look at the radical New York law and how you lit up the what was the Empire State Building in pink to celebrate abortion. And isn't it ironic that you have such a horrible situation in New York now? And I'm not necessarily tying the two things together. I just think it's an interesting observation that you, you... yeah, we are not operating in a universe where God is not paying attention to anything. And I'm again, I'm not I'm not being a charismatic preacher here and going, God definitely did this to New York on this day for this reason. Listen, I'm not saying that because I don't know that, but I'm just saying the radical abortion stuff is not made up and it's not on our heads and we're not a cult. But thanks, Reza. We appreciate it. Meanwhile, the White House has come out with a statement and said, no, we're not going to fire Dr. Fauci because fire Fauci was the hashtag that Trump, uh, President Trump retweeted. So people were asking whether or not Dr. Fauci would be fired. They said, no, 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 that's ridiculous. We're not going to fire Dr. Fauci. But I thought this interesting interview said a lot with Jake Tapper yesterday. This is cut eight. The New York Times reported yesterday that that you and other top officials wanted to recommend social and physical distancing guidelines to President Trump as far back as the third week of February. Uh, But the uh, administration didn't announce such guidelines to the American public until March 16th, almost a month later. Why? You know, Jake, as I've said many times, we look at it from a pure health standpoint. We make a recommendation. Often the recommendation is taken. Sometimes it's not. But we, it is what it is. We are where we are right now. Do you think lives could have been saved uh, if social distancing, physical distancing, stay-at-home measures had started third week of February instead of mid-March? You know, Jake, again, it's the what would have, what could have. It's very difficult to go back and say that. I mean, obviously, you could logically say that if you had a process that was ongoing and you started mitigation earlier, you could have saved lives. Obviously, no one is going to deny that. But what goes into those kinds of decisions is is complicated. But you're right. I mean, obviously, if we had right from the very beginning shut everything down, it may have been a little bit different. But there was a lot of pushback about shutting things down back then. All right. So he's basically saying that we could have shut stuff down in the third week of February and things would have been better now. But there was pushback. Nobody really wanted to shut it down. Was he referring to President Trump? Other people? Who knows? He didn't say. But I do know what Dr. Fauci had to say on the Today Show on February 29th. This is cut nine. 
So, Dr. Fauci, it's Saturday morning in America. People are waking up right now with real concerns about this. They want to go to malls and movies, maybe the gym as well. Should we be changing our habits? And if so, how? No, right now, at this moment, there is no need to change anything that you're doing on a day-by-day basis. Right now, the risk is still low, but this could change. I've said that many times, even on this program. You've got to watch out because although the risk is low now, you don't need to change anything you're doing. When you start to see community spread, this could change and force you to become much more attentive to doing things that would protect you from spread. That was February 29th. That was decidedly after the third week of February. Just just noticing these things. And it was Dr. Fauci who said, and this was from a story, March 9th in Forbes, Fauci did an interview in which he said, if you're a healthy young person, there is no reason if you want to go on a cruise ship, go on a cruise ship. But the fact is that if you have an individual who has an underlying condition, particularly an elderly person, I would recommend strongly they don't go on a cruise ship. Well, Fauci said cruising was okay if you're healthy. Back in early March. We'll be back. There's more to come on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, there has been a lot of discussion in the last few years about corruption in the FBI, the U.S. Department of Justice, and various other government entities. But what about the federal justice system? We're going to talk about that today with Sidney Powell, a former federal prosecutor and past president of the American Academy of Appellate Lawyers and the Bar Association of the Fifth Federal Circuit. She is joining us now to talk about the new book she's co-authored with Harvey Silverglate. It's called Conviction Machine, Standing Up to Federal Prosecutorial Abuse. Sydney, great to have you with us. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. You have been, as I mentioned, a federal prosecutor, a lead counsel, I know, in hundreds of federal appeals cases. What is going on in the justice system that should give listeners cause for concern? Well, a large number of prosecutors and even federal agents have become increasingly politicized over the last 20 years and realized they could also advance their careers by achieving the social and political objectives of whatever the administration is. Yeah. I mean, I've seen this cross Republican and Democratic administrations, so I'm an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> I, I wrote a book called License to Lie, Exposing Corruption in the Department of Justice that I self-published in 2014. About the same time, Harvey Silverglate, my co-author for Conviction Machine, wrote Three Felonies a Day, explaining how the average American citizen is committing three felonies every day they go about their normal business because we've had such an explosion of criminal laws. We don't even know that we're violating things that are out there on the books, which means that any prosecutor at any time, if they want to get you, can find something to pin on you. Boy, that's just like they could in in, uh, the Soviet Union. Yeah. 
Yeah, except you don't expect that in the United States of America as a matter of course. What has caused this? When you talk about a large number of prosecutors who have become politicized, for example, how does the politicization tie into the corruption? Well, it it was particularly uh, visible in the Enron litigation and then, uh, of course, the destruction of Arthur Anderson. Right. And then it even got worse in spades during the Obama administration. Obama literally weaponized every federal agency and used the full power of the federal government, whether it be IRS or EPA or other agencies, to target conservatives. Yes, he did. Yep, exactly. Well, and I think of Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, too. I know President Trump is talking about a potential exoneration of General Flynn. But what what about that? Because you talk about the FBI, the federal agents interviewing people without counsel, then they can use that catching them in misstatements. I mean, how what is that whole scenario? Can you explain to people how that happens and how a Flynn or somebody similar can get tripped up? Yes. Well, I represent General Flynn. I'm his lead counsel since there June go. of last year. Yes. And in the process of representing him, I realized that the FBI had interviewed him, well, first of all, without counsel. In fact, they encouraged him not to get counsel. He really didn't need it. And they ambush interviewed him one afternoon when he hadn't even gotten his pictures of his family unpacked and on his desk yet in the White House. The administration was so new. In fact, Comey went on national TV to brag about that, how clever he was in making that happen. They wouldn't have done it in any other administration, but hey, it's Trump, so right. just send a couple of agents over there. They won't know what to do. Right. So that's what they did, and they never record interviews like that. They simply take whatever notes they want to take, and then they come back, and maybe days or even weeks later, they write up what's called a 302, which there is their official report of the interview. Well, the Flynn 302 was kept in, quote, deliberative process, which I've never even heard of, uh, for weeks and repeatedly altered, including by Peter Strzok and Lisa Page over the night of February 10. This is three weeks after Flynn's interviewed on January 24th. And they made, they put in things that had no weren't tethered to the notes at all. The notes didn't mention them in any way, shape, or form. They made statements in there that he never said, and they left out things he did say. Uh, And then they used that, even though the agents came back from the interview and reported to three different groups of people. They did three high-level briefings on the interviews, on the interview at the FBI and the DOJ, reported back to everybody that they believed Flynn, he, he was telling the truth. And yet Mueller winds up prosecuting him for purported false statements. Wow. Yeah. It's been what a travesty. What do you think is going to happen with that? The president seems inclined to do the right thing. But where do you think things stand right now? Well, what really needs to happen is for the Department of Justice to get to the truth of the matter. Attorney General Barr appointed a man, uh, Jeff Jensen, out of Missouri, the U.S. attorney there, who also was an FBI agent for 10 years, I think to review the case and work on it with Mr. Van Grack. Well, Mr. Van Grack is one of the Mueller 
proteges and an Andrew Weissman wannabe. And he's the one, frankly, responsible for all the misconduct in the case since the beginning of its prosecution, at least. The FBI agents, of course, were Peter Strzok and one I can't name, but most of the public knows who that is. Mm -hmm. And we just learned when the inspector general's report came out in December of this last year that that second agent had been inserted secretly into a presidential briefing of nominee Trump because General Flynn was going to be there. And they wanted him to collect information on Flynn and, quote, assess him in case they needed to interview him later. Mm-hmm. This is the timeline of this is such that I now know that General Flynn was the main linchpin of the insurance policy that Strzok and Page talked about on August 15th in their text message, because August 16th, they opened the, quote, case on Flynn, end quote, and on August 17th, they slipped this agent into the presidential briefing because Flynn's going to be there in case they need to interview Flynn later. Good grief. But it's terrifying what has happened to him in the aftermath of all that corruption, and yet we're still awaiting some sort of justice against these people who committed it. It's it's insane what's going on. It is. It's, it's absolutely insane, and it really shouldn't take Mr. Jensen very long to see that there was egregious government misconduct here. That's the only time that's ever been done in a presidential campaign. It's so egregious that Christopher Ray shut it down immediately and said it will never happen again. It was a complete breach of trust that's supposed to exist between the briefers and the, and the president or the nominee in those circumstances. It's absolutely abhorrent conduct. It is. What is the reason that the FBI is reluctant to have the the recording of these sessions? They they don't... Well, according to Bob Mueller, who testified in front of Congress about it when he was director of the FBI, it would just be too much for them to keep up with. It was it was too much trouble. Oh, please. Never mind. <laughs> FBI agents have recording devices in their pockets all the time, as we all do with cell phones, if not two. Right. And it would be far easier to just turn that in and have it transcribed than it would be to take notes, come back, sit down and write up a blooming report. Yeah, that's right. What is it the case? Because I'm a little unclear on this, but if you are approached by FBI agents and they say, can we talk with you? Can you invoke your right to having counsel there or do they say no? You, you, I mean, do they have any authority to tell you that you can't have counsel with you when they interview you? No, you can, in fact, Harvey and I are in our book Conviction Machine tell everybody not to say a word to the FBI agents anymore. Yeah. I mean, I was raised to trust the government, trust prosecutors, trust agents, trust police. And with the FBI, the way I've seen them manipulate things in any number of cases, it's not just this one, but this is the most egregious. We have to tell people not not to say a word to them that isn't fully recorded and with counsel. That's terrible. Is there anything that you believe Congress could do to remedy this situation or is it kind of beyond everybody? The best route is just to refuse to talk to them if they want to interview with without your counsel. Well, at the very least, they could add a sentence to the statute that these false statements are prosecuted under to say that no such case can be brought in the absence of a fully warned and fully recorded interview. So that there should be no debate whatsoever about what was said or how it was said. As we all know, just a change in intonation can make a difference between whether something's a question or a statement, including the one word. Really, 
Yeah. I, there's so many scary things and scary scenarios that you outline in your book, Conviction Machine. And I want to get into some of those. One of the things I want to talk about when we come back is you talk about some changes, for example, to fix the problems with the grand jury process. And there are some abuses that occur when prosecutors get these indictments in a sleazy way. You need to know about it. We're going to come back with Sydney Powell. Her book is Conviction Machine, Standing Up to Federal Prosecutorial Abuse. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with the Bible League on Stand With Them, Bibles for the Persecuted Church. Paul reminded Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is defined as suffering for the sake of Christ and His glory, and it comes in many forms all over the world. In India, it's being shunned by Hindu family members. In China, it's the loss of church buildings. In the Middle East, it could be jail or even death at the hands of extremists. Isaiah is a new Christian praying for the nourishment that comes only from God's Word. Send him a Bible for only $5. $100 sends Bibles to 20 Christians. And through the end of April, there's a Bible for Bible match that will help us send God's Word to as many persecuted Christians as possible. All you have to do is call 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 800-YES-WORD. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. If you're looking for adventure, serving as a volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at mercyships.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back. Thank you so much for joining us. And it's great to be joined by Sidney Powell, a former federal prosecutor and also co-author of Conviction Machine. We're talking about some of the really scary things that are going on in the federal justice system. And, you know, one of the things that you point out, Sidney, in the book is that you have the government holding all the cards in a criminal case. Now, you'd like to think that the justice system is about justice, but how is that the case that they hold all the cards? Well, they're the ones who decide what charges to bring. They interview the witnesses. They often tell the witnesses that they don't have to talk to the defense and strongly encourage them not to. It is true that witnesses don't have to talk to the defense, but the more they encourage them not to do that, obviously, the less it's going to happen. Uh, They decide if, if they have information that is exculpatory to the defense that they're actually constitutionally, legally, and ethically required to produce. It's called Brady material. The defendants don't know what they don't know that the government might have uncovered in their investigation. And that happens probably in at least 50 percent of the cases. 
Well, that's a huge problem. And what of the grand jury process? How have you seen some abuses go on there? Oh, well, a prosecutor can indict anybody he wants to indict because they decide what testimony to put on in front of the grand jury, and they never put on exculpatory testimony unless unless they want to cover themselves and get a case dismissed instead of prosecuted. Right, so... so they can just, you know, they do what they want to do. Mr. Mueller indicted a company that did not exist yes. in his Russia troll farm case. True. And and he also indicted a company for something that is not criminal conduct. I mean, making Facebook, placing Facebook ads is not a crime. Good grief. I, what about training of grand jurors? What kind of training would be helpful? Well, for one thing, they need to understand the importance of asking for exculpatory information if they have any doubt. I mean, keep in mind that most cases the government brings are slam dunk. The person is clearly guilty. There's no issue about whether they knew it was a crime or not. It's usually in the more complicated uh, and, for lack of a better description, business transactions or white collar cases where the prosecutors don't even understand what the business transaction was. (laughs) And they try to make a crime out of something that wasn't or uh, they wrongfully identify the defendant in sometimes violent crime cases or or other cases like that. So those are are the usual situations where something goes horribly awry. Either there's a political or, you know, social motivation for the prosecution and they try to put a square peg in a round hole or, as one of my friends used to say, a ripe boysenberry in a parking meter slot. (laughs) And it just makes a big mess. Yeah, exactly. What what about the discovery process? This is something else that I think is interesting, the, the problems that exist there. For a lot of people who are not familiar with how things work in a courtroom, if they are called to jury duty, they may just sit there and, oh, okay, whatever's going on, I'm, I, I'm sure everybody's on the up and up. But what goes on during the discovery process that, that brings you into, you know, some real strong concerns? Well, that's particularly over the the Brady issue, the exculpatory evidence that the government's supposed to produce to the defense. The way it stands right now, the government gets to decide whether it's, quote, material to the defense, whether it could result in a change of the outcome or be strong enough to impeach the government's witnesses. They're supposed to produce it, even if it might mitigate the punishment. Uh, but if they have that and they categorize it as that, they don't produce it until you get to the sentencing phase. Wow. So they have they play all kinds of games. They should never be allowed to determine what is material to the defense, nor can a judge, frankly. Only right. the defense attorney knows what is or might be material to the defense. So the government, in most cases, should have a completely open file policy. Yeah. If they have information about the case, it should be given to the defendant. Well, the fact I, that I really it, don't yeah. see any reason reason not to do that unless there is the life and safety of a witness. And there is in, you know, many of the more violent and huge cases, there are genuine life-threatening issues with respect to some of the witnesses. Right. But that's not in most cases by far. Well, it's strange to me because why why wouldn't the defense attorney be on a level playing field with the government, if the, especially if the person is innocent? Why Have defense attorneys raised issues about this in, in any big mass and said, no, this is ridiculous. We need to have more of a say in what's presented here. Well, there was a huge effort back in 2015, I think, after the Shulky report came out, the independent prosecutor, Judge Sullivan, named to look into the conduct of the Department of Justice in hiding evidence against previous Senator Ted Stevens. 
the senator from Alaska who yes. lost his seat after a wrongful prosecution that came back with a guilty verdict by the jury only eight days before his election, and he only lost the election by 3,000 votes, but that changed the balance of power in the United States Senate. So Mr. Schulke did a scathing report on the about 500 pages on the Department of Justice and pervasive, intentional, and systematic misconduct in it. A large group of people got together and proposed the Fairness and Disclosure of Evidence Act. It was supported by every legal organization you can think of across the country, from the ACLU to the National Chamber of Commerce to the ABA, the American Bar Association, and all kinds of other bar associations. Its only significant opposition was from former federal prosecutors, possibly and definitely the United States Department of Justice, and it died on the vine in committee. That needs to be revived and passed without a doubt. So you like it as is, just the way it's written? It's it's exactly the way it ought to be? Well, I'd have to look at it again. It's been a while since I've reread the proposal, and I'm sure it could be improved. But right, right. They could certainly start there. Yeah, that's good to know. What about some of these criminal statutes? There are some concerns I know about vagueness and the overabundance of some of these statutes. What do people need to know in that regard? that there is a law out there that makes <laughs> that you violate every day whether you know it or not that's Harvey's three felonies a day book yes and we talk about some of that in conviction machine <clears throat> but yes we just have a plethora of criminal laws and then on top of that overly creative prosecutors have tried to make new law by piecing together parts of different statutes to make a crime out of something that wasn't that's how they destroyed Arthur Anderson and 85,000 jobs, only to be reversed by unanimous Supreme Court two and a half years later. Yeah. That's how they sent four innocent Merrill Lynch executives to prison for up to a year by making up a crime and applying a law to facts that it didn't apply to, to conduct that wasn't criminal. <laughs> that was the United States versus Brown case. I detail in length and license to lie. And, I mean, they they can just do what they want, and there's no... There's no, nothing to rein them in. They have absolute immunity. Bar associations never do anything to prosecutors. That is evident from reading License to Lie. Wow. So the the whole process is broken when you have a category of extremely powerful people who can destroy someone's life with an hour in the grand jury and a stroke of the pen wow. and literally crush them with the conviction machine and a rate of convictions of over 98%, wow. whether they're innocent or not. That's terrifying. What about the judges, Sydney? When you talk about judges being corrupt as well, what have you seen in that regard? What, how bad is it? It's it's bad. I mean, it's not necessarily that they're. Uh, I mean, it's not like they're taking bribes or or that kind of corruption. It's an unwillingness to dig into and really serve the gatekeeping function they need to serve by looking at the evidence and being willing to stand up hold the government to account for itself, hold the government by the same standards they seek to hold others, make them produce exculpatory evidence. It's like a willingness to rubber stamp whatever the agents or the government put in front of them. It's, an, it's, like, it's like an intellectual corruption. Yeah. Well, that's the real, the real question, I think, that I have when I'm listening to the stories and reading through your book is that why is it that so many people are so willing to be corrupt? I mean, obviously, that's human nature in some regard, but to have it so widespread and to not have the Bar Association hold these people accountable, how can people even enter into a, a, a trial of any kind 
and not be terrified with all of this, knowing all the stuff that you're revealing here. Exactly. I mean, that's that's the crux of the problem. And we felt like the first step was to increase awareness around the country as much as we could of the true problems here. Yeah. Know that they don't happen in the majority of cases, but they ha- the Brady violations happen in probably a majority of cases. It's not always outcome determinative, but it shouldn't happen at all. I mean, a jury should be the very purpose of a jury is to consider both sides and all the relevant facts of the case. The yes. prosecutor shouldn't be allowed to determine what all the relevant facts of a case are. No, absolutely and not. And they need to be retrained. I mean, the whole culture has become perverted in the FBI and the Department of Justice. They need to go back to realizing that even defendants are people they are supposed to protect in one sense of the word because they have individual rights also, not that the Everybody else is supposed to be protected, too. I'm certainly not advocating that defendants be given cushy treatment. It's just we need to remember until they're proved guilty beyond a reasonable doubt with all the facts and evidence on the table, including what might ever exonerate them, they haven't had a fair trial. That's important. we can't really say they're guilty. You're right. You're absolutely right. Well, you can read all about it in Conviction Machine. Sydney Powell with us. And so good to have you here, Sydney. I really appreciate your filling us in on what's going on. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. God bless you. And thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford Today. We'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Mefford Today has been brought to you by Bible League. Help us help Bible League send the hope of God's word to 1,200 persecuted believers. $35 sends seven Bibles. And today your gift will be doubled with a limited time match. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD.